This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. I'm speaking today with the natural historian Richard J. King about his new book, Ahab's Rolling Sea, A Natural History of Moby Dick. Your book, Richard, is a ship that comes laden with many wonders, historical, biological, and philosophical, scientific, and poetic. You offer a study of Herman Melville's great novel, Moby Dick, joined with a study of the world's oceans you describe as the most expansive, fascinating, comprehensive, sublime ecosystem on the planet. Perhaps you can begin by explaining the scheme of your book, how it is constructed, and with what beast in view. Sure. Thank you, Lewis, and it's an honor to be with you. Um, I started the book uh, maybe about four years ago, but it really feels like a whole career's worth of research and experiences and thinking, and um, and there have been so many Melville scholars before me that have that have done so much of the really heavy labor of the research, and so... I wanted to create a book um, for a general audience that would take a lot of the research that has already been and some new research and sort of look at Moby Dick as a benchmark for how we understood the ocean in the 1850s, um, both from a biological standpoint as well as a sort of aesthetic point of view. And Melville has this, you know, because he had been to see himself for so many years and because he was such a, uh, a big reader, um, he really provides a unique perspective of 1851's perception of the ocean really eight years before Charles Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species. Um, and so I sort of go through uh, almost point by point Melville's discussions of giant squid, of plankton, of whale behavior, of whale intelligence, of St. Elmo's fire, of meteorology, of navigation, and sort of says, what could Melville have known? How does he depict it in Moby Dick? What might he have tweaked for his fiction? And then how does this compare to what we know now um, in the 21st century? And the book takes the form of, of the voyage of the Pequod. But before we start the voyage of your book and the voyage of Melville's Pequod, tell the listener a little about your own experience at sea. I mean, you've been traveling the sea for your whole life. Uh, you, you been on square rigged ships. You've seen the spout of a sperm whale in the South Pacific. So give us a little history of your own. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, I, I have just one of the best jobs in the world. Uh, I teach for a college semester at sea, the Sea Education Association, which is based in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And we study for six weeks in Woods Hole, and then we take our students out to sea for six weeks at a time. And we take them out to sea on, on modern scientific research vessels, but that are also equipped to go under sea. And so we have this extraordinary combination of being under sail, um, learning to observe the ocean and understand the weather at sea, and being out of sight of land for multiple days, sometimes weeks at a time, but at the same time really being able to conduct modern oceanography. And so uh, I've been able to work with uh, Sea Education Association for many years in different capacities and um, 
But probably maybe the best story to tell before we get into the book is um, my first voyage, which was uh, 1993 on a vessel called the Concordia, which was a three-masted square rigger out of Canada. And it was my first job teaching, um, my first teaching job ever. And here I was teaching high school and um, postgraduate students on a high school semester at sea. And we were teaching a lot of um, Virginia Woolf and Tessa the D'Urbervilles. And I that was very interesting from a sort of correspondence point of view, but I wanted to teach about the ocean. And so we pulled into Sydney, Australia, and I thought, okay, what sort of literature of the sea book could I get uh, here on short notice? And there was a pile of Moby Dick. And I I had never read it before. And so I thought, okay, you know, how hard could this be? <laughs> and um, so I, I brought Moby Dick on board and uh, read it for the first time uh, in Tahiti and got a chance to teach it uh, to a group of students out at sea. And I've, I've been hooked ever since. It certainly shows in, in, in your writing. And, and that first ship you were on was a square rig ship, right? That's right. Yeah. So I, I had that opportunity to climb all the way up to the Royal Masthead. And as you mentioned, uh, and I use as an introduction in Ahab's Rolling Sea to sort of stand up there on the Royal Yard and actually be able to see the spout of a sperm whale off on the horizon. And, and how old were you at that time? I was um, right about the age of Melville when he went into the South Pacific. So I think I was about 24. All right. Now tell us about Melville. Uh before he writes Moby Dick, which is published yeah. in 1851, but he's been to sea. Talk about his voyages at sea when he starts off at about your same age. Before Melville sits down to write Moby Dick, uh, he's been across the Atlantic twice, uh, once as uh, for his first voyage when he was 19 years old on a um, merchant ship from New York to Liverpool. And then he also went in transatlantic um, right before writing Moby Dick uh, as a passenger when he was selling one of his previous books, White Jacket, um, in London. But his sort of major at-sea odyssey, which was nearly four years long, was leaving New Bedford, Mass. on a vessel called the Akushnet. And uh, this was in 1841, and he sailed around Cape Horn and for about 14 months was on the Akushnet. And then he uh, found his way on two other whaling ships for a short time, ended up in Hawaii, and then for another 14 months back uh, was on the United States Man of War, uh, the named the United States. So when he returned uh, to Boston in 1845, he'd been to sea for nearly four years on four different vessels. And um, at one point, he spent about four and a half months without seeing any land, without <laughs> even coming to anchor uh, in the far eastern Pacific. Uh, all right. Now he's back in Boston and 1845. He's also a great reader. I mean, I've, I've read Melville's Moby Dick a number of times as well as his other novels, and, and his reading is, is vast. I mean, he, knowledge of the Bible, his knowledge of Shakespeare, his knowledge of the scientific uh, natural philosophy of his day is, is really voluminous. Yeah, it really is just extraordinary. And one thing that uh, previous scholars have done is really looked at the library and the sources um, of that Melville 
mentions very directly in Moby Dick and his other works and others that are more subtly mentioned. And so there's a, a lot out there about what Melville read. And there are even some of his books that remain, um, like uh, Thomas Beale's A Natural History of the Sperm Whale, um, which was one of the first texts that really looked at the sperm whale from uh, a natural historian's perspective. And so we have Melville's sort of marginalia, the notes along the side, and you can go to this great website called Melville's Marginalia and actually see uh, scans of these um, pages and really sort of look at what Melville was writing in the margins or underlining or checking and uh, compare that to Moby Dick. And it's just this wonderful window to what he was learning and, and what he was connecting with his own experience. All right. Well, and now let's start with the voyage of your book, which is cast as a the voyage of the Pequod and tell us how you you know first of all what is that voyage I mean describe it you know into the South Atlantic and so forth and then and yeah. then and then uh, we'll talk about sort of how you organize the book and and uh, we'll go from there okay um, I uh, you know it's it's pretty easy to trace uh, Melville's, or at least Ishmael's voyage aboard the Pequod as Melville presents it. Um, it goes around the North Atlantic following the trade winds, uh, heads down into the South Atlantic, um, uh, and then makes his way uh, eastward um, underneath the Cape of Good Hope and into the Indian Ocean. And that was not uncommon. There were some whale ships that would go that way and other whale ships that went around Cape Horn. Melville, interestingly, chooses not to go around Cape Horn with the Pequod as he had done himself. Um, but he chooses to take the Pequod into the Indian Ocean. And there they encounter enormous patches of plankton, giant squid. And then slowly they make their way uh, in the novel uh, up through the South China Sea into the Sea of Japan, and then eventually down to the equator um, in the South Pacific, um, where uh, the Pequod encounters the white whale and sort of Ahab's quest. All right, so let's go back to the beginning and talk about the beginning of the voyage and some of the principal characters, Ishmael, Ahab, the white whale himself, the ship Pequod and, and its crew. Sure. Um, Ahab is pretty well known to readers, I suppose, but um, he's a pretty complicated character. And certainly when it comes to the 1920s and 1930s, when there's sort of a revival of Moby Dick uh, in terms of thinking about the novel and its significance to modern culture, uh, thinking about him as, you know, sort of a proto-fascist uh, character has been really compelling and important to think about. Um, and sometimes when we read Ahab in the 21st century, we want to sort of suggest that he is a sort of uh, model for a capitalist anti-environmentalist figure and that he sort of his hubris against nature is um, one of the lessons of Moby Dick. Um, and I think there is some validity to that, but I think also Ahab Ahab has a pretty particular, he's not against all whales, he's against one, one particular whale, and how you consider the symbolism of the white whale might be how you read the environmentalism of the book. Um, but I do think that Ahab, uh, his sort of uh, struggling with faith and God and 
control uh, is really relevant as we think today in the 21st century about our own role uh, with the natural world and with climate change. And then with Ishmael, Ishmael's a really interesting character also if we're thinking about climate change because he uh, for those readers that are familiar with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, in some ways he's very similar to the Ancient Mariner from Samuel T- Taylor Coleridge's ballad in that he witnesses this horrific event, this disaster, and then is compelled to tell the story. Um, but he does not – he's not really a participant in the events. He doesn't stand up to Ahab. Um, he almost by luck is just the one that remains to tell that story, um, and he clearly uh, takes on the telling of that um, with, with his scholarly tone, um, but trying to approach the problem from every perspective that he can think of. And his voice is also the narrative voice of the novel. And he pauses a num- several times or many times to discuss the natural history of the ocean, to discuss, as you say, weather, currents, the, the structure of the whale, the, the seabirds. I mean, there are pauses when, when, when he, and again, he's extremely observant and, and talk about some of the things that he pauses to examine on the, on the voyage. Sure. Yeah. You know, the novel starts off almost like a lot of the sea narratives that we're used to reading in the 19th century. It's a green hand. He's going to sea. There's a lot of humor. Um, and then we get to uh, New Bedford and Nantucket and he meets a Pacific Islander friend and they go, go on a sh- ship. And then all of a sudden, once that vessel leaves uh, Nantucket and goes out into the North Atlantic and is out of sight of land, suddenly this becomes a very different novel. Um, uh, And one of the first sort of surprises to modern readers and and also readers in the 19th century was that Cetology chapter, which is the first sort of very essay-style chapter where Ishmael all of a sudden says, you know what, I actually have a lot of expertise here about whales, and I want to tell you a little bit or a lot about the taxonomy of whales um, in, before we go further. Ishmael, as a narrator, um, decides that he, he, he needs to, we need to get some things straight about the taxonomy of whales before we move further into the story. Um, and that can be really surprising to a modern reader, and it always – I always wince a little bit when they're, you know, when someone say, oh, I just skipped over the cetology chapters or things like that. Um, it is really important to the story and uh, for a lot of different ways. One way is that Ishmael's establishing his authority, that he has been on this voyage, but then has really done his reading afterwards and done his study, and that he really does have something to say and is an expert on this topic as we move forward. Um, it's also really important that cetology chapter and some of his other essay chapters in thinking about natural history at the time and what the natural theological perspective was um, and how uh, natural historians grouped animals in the 19th century before we started to consider um, in a very public way the idea of descent. Um, that Darwin would bring about with on the origin of species. But Melville is himself a, a natural philosopher. I mean, he knows what he's talking about, and his attitude toward the ocean, toward the environment, is surprisingly 
modern. I mean, he's 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 ahead of his time. Yeah, that's right. I think in in some ways, when modern readers uh, encounter the book, they think that he is behind the times because they read things where he'll say, "Oh, that the whale is actually a fish." Um, but and, and that's in that cetology chapter. But actually, Melville is more just saying, "Listen, I understand that a whale is a mammal by those naturalists who are ashore. But since the whalemen that I go out with, the people that are actually out at sea every day, they call the whale a fish. So I'm going to call it a fish too, just in the same way that um, a lobsterman today might just refer to a, a lobster as a bug, even though he knows that it, you know it is not an insect. Um, and that you know, and that, that's sort of what I." One of the major structures of, of Ahab's Rolling Sea was I went out and I talked to experts uh, in various fields and said, hey, how do you um, interpret Melville's writing written in 1851? And so I went and talked to experts with giant squid and sharks and um, uh, and sperm whale biologists and said, you know, how, uh, how does this align with what we know today? Um, and Almost all the time, uh, the biologists are really quite surprised at the details that uh, Melville through Ishmael adds and describes. Um, and it's pretty clear when Melville is twisting something for fictional purposes. Melville is also aware of the damage that humankind can do uh, to the natural world not only to the ocean itself, but to the inhabitants of the ocean. I mean, he, you mention his throwing harpoons, or, or not his throwing harpoons, but mid-19th century American uh, industrial culture throwing harpoons into the uh, natural world. One of the most significant chapters for 21st century environmentalist reading of Moby Dick is a chapter called Does the Whale's Magnitude Diminish? Will He Perish? Um, and there, Melville asks the question really quite directly and surprisingly, are human hands affecting whale populations? Will whale populations grow extinct? Or maybe are whales even getting smaller by size based on hunting. Um, and we have a lot of clues that uh, Melville and a lot of his contemporaries, John James Audubon, Emerson, Thoreau, were well aware of human impacts on the natural world, particularly in New England, whether it was deforestation or um, uh, air pollution from that very opening of the industrial era. Um, Melville in Moby Dick writes about the loss of the buffalo um, and the sort of uh, sort of march out west, and how that is affecting not only Native Americans but wildlife and forests. Um, and Melville is aware of some effects on coastal marine populations, seals, fish. But in the end, in that chapter, does the whale's magnitude diminish? Melville really believes that the deep ocean environment that that out-at-sea area still is beyond the touch of man, um, which is in some ways really surprising, but in other ways not that different to how we see the ocean today. Um, Melville was writing at a time before 
the industrial whaling of the 20th century, before uh, the internal combustion engine, before a steel hull, um, before the powerful winches and explosive harpoons that could take down so many whales in all waters. And so he knew that uh, whale populations, notably the sperm whale and right whales, were being affected and perhaps even their behavior and numbers was being impacted. But he believed, like all of his contemporaries or most of them, that the ocean was just too big and too large for humans to affect whale populations at that time. But some of the most recent uh, environmental writing, we, we, you know, we talk about the bleaching of the corals and the acidification of the sea and the amount of plastic that's being dumped into it as uh, truly hazardous waste that might make the sea mortal instead of immortal. Yes. And I think that's why something like Moby Dick is such an intriguing benchmark, because really at the start of that industrial revolution and, you know, what we, we might say is the first century or first century and a half of the epic that we're now calling the Anthropocene, um, Melville could, you know, even with his own vast imagination, he could never be able to imagine this idea of what is happening today where that we're actually affecting the very height of the ocean on average, that we're actually affecting the very chemistry of the entire sea, that um, that there'd be things made by man with an unknown biodegradability that could be floating at sea and even found in, you know, in our drinking water ashore. And so it's uh, Melville really represents that era that the ocean is unfathomable, immortal, untouchable, divine. And so the idea of a the Save the Seas campaign uh, to Melville would have been, if not comical, definitely heretical, that the ocean needed human help to, uh, to exist and to survive, and the inhabitants would need that assistance. Um, and, and, you know, some of that literature, like Moby Dick, has has really, I think, affected our own ability as a culture to act on ocean pollution and uh, the the and overfishing because we still it's so ingrained in our culture, you know, very much through our literature that the that the sea is this immortal, vast, untouchable space. You have a very telling incident in, toward the end of the book when you're on your, one of your oceanographic vo uh, voyages teaching students with a student in the up on the masthead who suddenly sees a plastic bucket in the middle of the ocean tell tell me about her response and your response to her response sure yeah you know um uh right now uh and we're teaching a group of students on shore and we'll go to sea with them in two weeks and just like anyone our students have chosen to go to sea because they're excited about the wilderness of the ocean and that open space and to get away from uh, a lot of what we might call eco guilt ashore and you know we're teaching them about ocean plastics and we're teaching them about ocean acidification and many much of that they they already know even before they've arrived on campus um but they're is 
nothing like uh, when you go to sea and you get out of the sight of land and, as Melville says, you breathe the, the very breath that the whales respire. Um, and it is so invigorating and extraordinary to be 100 feet above the deck and out of sight of land and just see that big ocean horizon all around you. Um, but then, as often will happen on some of these voyages, and I've been able to sail through the Pacific Garbage Patch, you know, on a voyage from uh, San Francisco, um, from Hawaii to San Francisco. And on this one particular voyage, the incident that I talked about at the end of Ahab's Rolling Sea, uh, we're in the Equatorial Pacific in the region of Kiribati, the Phoenix Islands. And to be up aloft and see that open space and then to see something floating in the water and you think, oh, that must be a, a sea turtle or maybe it's, wait, what is that? And as it's getting closer and closer, you realize, oh, no, that is not, that's not a sea turtle. That is a bucket or a cooler. And it can be so profoundly disturbing because it's so much in our psyche to imagine the ocean as this untouchable space beyond the touch of man. And when you do see uh, an object like that at sea, um, it can be really striking. And for all of us, whether you're an undergraduate or whether you're 65 years old, to just be at sea and see that thing floating can be really troubling. And they see that on sometimes on that level, like a bucket, but more often as we're doing plankton toes and seeing microplastics uh, in our toes, also profoundly disturbing. Talk now a little bit about Moby Dick himself, the white whale. Describe him and also in what kind of metaphysical clothing does, does uh, Melville bring to the whiteness of the whale? One of the things that I love about Moby Dick is it has had so many interpretations over the years, and I think they're all valid, and they all continue to lay, layer on themselves. Um, I approach uh, looking at the white whale very much directly as a whale, um, as a sperm whale. And uh, Melville is pretty careful about how he describes whales and considers their biology and their intelligence. And... Um, he doesn't say how big this, uh, the white whale is. Uh, we never really get an exact length, um, but it's certainly a, a monster large male sperm whale. Um, he, we certainly have whales that are still alive today that have all kinds of scratches and they're scratched up to whiteness. And then we even have albino marine mammals um, of multiple species. So that certainly could have happened. And many uh, readers know that there was a uh, whale known as Mocha Dick um, that had been written of by a uh, writer named Jeremiah Reynolds, um, who was perhaps fictional, but perhaps had some uh, true witnesses. Um, and then Melville takes this whale as a symbol of, for, for readers, so many different things. For me, I, I do see the white whale and Ahab as a... At a as a discussion of understanding faith and as a symbol of nature. Um, it is not an accident for me that at the end of the novel, um, Moby Dick does not, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, he survives, he continues on, um, and that Moby Dick never actually is attacking Ahab or the Pequod until he is attacked 
contact. And so Starbuck, the pious first mate, looking over the rail, you know, is trying to tell Ahab, you're the one pursuing this whale. It's not the whale pursuing you. And um, so I think there's a real significance to that. And the fact that Ahab, um, sorry if this is a spoiler alert, but um, that Ahab dies um, not sort of by the tooth or by the tail of um, Moby Dick, the white whale, but by the act of trying to harpoon the white whale, he kills himself with his own rope, basically hangs himself as he throws that harpoon towards the white whale. But then in that rage, the white whale goes and sinks the Pequod, um, causing uh, so much death and destruction, um, which we can ascribe to being Ahab's fault. Well, I mean, that works as a symbol for climate change. I mean, the, the Pequod is carefully crewed by citizens of everywhere in the world. I mean, the as you say, the harpooners are African-American, South Sea Islander, Native American Indian. There are black slaves on board. There are there's an Arab. Uh, there, are, there are people of all kinds, and and it's the, it's the human world, up against, the natural world, and over the long term. It's the natural world that is likely to. Outlive, the human world. Do you do you come to that conclusion? Very much. And I think that, you know, sort of two levels. One, uh, there is a sort of climate justice reading to Moby Dick, which I do not think is is a stretch at all. I think we can continue to read Moby Dick in what we're thinking about today. And, uh, you know, it's not an accident, as you said, that Melville creates this entirely diverse crew, and they're the laboring class of the Pequod, and they suffer by this power of this single... Um, white man who is just drives everyone to their death and no one has the power to stop him. Um, but it is the entire crew, the ones that really suffer because of Ahab's hubris. And then for, on the second level, I, I definitely have sort of come to think about Ishmael as a symbol of the climate refugee and even Pip floating in the deep sea as well. Pip being the sort of um, the African-American steward on board who has the least power on the ship. Um, and that these sort of Pip as the castaway and then Ishmael as the sort of lone survivor floating out at sea um, without any sort of land underneath them, any soil underneath and that sort of uh, grounding underneath their feet. And here is if we take the novel to end in the region of Kiribati, where I interpret it, but it could be in the region of any South Pacific Island region of, that is an area where these Pacific Island communities are suffering uh, because of sea level rise uh, and the increase of storm systems, and in some cases because of the bleaching of coral reefs with global warming. They've had nothing to do with the cause of climate change, and yet they're on the front lines of suffering because of it. Um, and uh, feeling powerless because of uh, Western nations' hubris. Say a final word about the power of Melville's writing. I mean, I believe it or not, when I was a child of six, my mother read to me the Moby Dick, and, <laughs> and the uh, you know, I mean, Melville's prose to me is is uh, magnificent. 
Yes, I agree. And I, I think there's always a, you know, um, I, I have loved working on this book and the analysis of the text and um, thinking about what Melville knew about the natural environment. Um, and I appreciate all the interpretations that are out there in terms of thinking about Shakespeare and fascism and capitalism and gender and race. Um, but I very much agree that the number one most extraordinary aspect about Moby Dick and Melville's writing are those words, those sentences, the power of his prose. And I remember that first time sitting on the beach in Tahiti and reading those paragraphs and just, it's, you know, it like hits you in the face with a bat sometimes. And you just need to pause for a moment and take in the power of the speech. Well, your book does that. It, it's a truly wonderful book, Richard. I mean, uh, the uh, it it hits you in the face with, with, with its combination of, of ideas and observation and science and poetry and Thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you. I honored to speak with you. And and again, I I have my 2013 issue of of your quarterly uh, on my desk, and uh, a whole issue devoted to the sea. It's it's a wonderful anthology, and I love your opening essay. Oh well, thank you, and thank you, Richard J. King, for speaking with us today about your new book, Ahab's Rolling Sea. A Natural History of Moby Dick. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.